You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the Conservative Conscience. And welcome back to the Conservative Conscience here at Conservative Review on Westwood One Podcast Network. It is a new week. It is Monday, June 4th, and I hope you guys had a great weekend. I know I did not. I spent half of it in bed or in the bathroom. Terrible stomach bug. And that's why I am really behind on a lot of the news. So much to talk about. I actually planned on originally doing this show on the economic news, on the farm bill, on other stuff going on in Congress. Obviously, jailbreak. The more we find out what's in that bill, the worse it is, which is a lesson of, you know, like you kind of have to read a bill, um, of which none of the Congress members uh, applied in, in this case. But I want to talk about something more fundamental based on what happened at the Supreme Court. You know, because you guys are such loyal listeners, I have the right to come into your house and really take out anything I want. Now, if I want to take your wives from you, well, maybe we could talk about that. Maybe we could have some litigation. But the rest, look, that's that 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 ship has sailed, and you should just be happy with uh, the the crumbs you get from the Supreme Court. This is essentially what happened at the Supreme Court today in the Masterpiece Case case. And what I want to discuss today is how not only the outcome of this case, but the reaction from the professional conservative movement and many of my colleagues is emblematic of everything we talk about on the courts, You know how it's a one-way street and dead end, how all the conservatives are playing the wrong game. They think they could win this judiciary game and even crown the judiciary as supreme as if they're going to be the solution when they're the problem, and then really on every other issue as well. The soft bigotry of low expectations we talk about so often, how the farther to the left the um, liberals move, the more the more the conservatives move to the left. They're like, well, at least uh, they only made us get one sex change operation for, per family, not two. I'm, I'm really ticked off about what I'm seeing, but I first want to delve into this case. And in order to do that, I want to bring on a really special guest. You know, those of you who are really crazy, who listen to me from day one, you know, the show has grown exponentially over the last couple of years, but I know you're a true believer and an original if you've heard of Joe Goss. Joe is my colleague at Conservative Review. He's a social media director, but he's also the only one of us who actually has a law degree. Um, he studied natural law, constitutional law in law school, and has a good grasp of just the philosophy behind what we see with judicial supremacy, the conservative acquiescence to it. Um, which is really frustrating. And I figured we'd kind of go back to the old days here and try it again once more and bring back Joe Cost, the original co-host. Hey, Joe, good to have you back. And are you as ticked off as I am? Well, it's great to be back. And yes, I am. Only righteous anger could bring me back uh, to sully up your podcast on something (laughs) like this and and dispense with all the pleasantries that normally – 
I would I would give you and say no, Daniel. I don't want to you know make your listeners bored to tears. But uh, yeah, I'm pretty upset, um, and and not because of the decision so much because I think you and I have long settled in our minds and hearts that this is just sort of the way that the judiciary is going. But I'm more upset at the conservative smart set, if you will. I don't want to disparage them. I don't want to demean them. But it upsets me that we have to sort of have this attitude that quote a win is a win because a win isn't a win if it's actually not winning. And we can look at the score, so to speak, and say, oh, 7-2, we won. But, I mean, good for Mr. Phillips, Jack Phillips, the the, the guy in the case, the, the owner of the bakery. But I don't see how anyone else wins in this scenario. In fact, I think that by calling it a win, we've set ourselves up for um, disappointment in the future, for sure. You know, it's funny you talk about a score. It reminds me of winning seven to two on on day 150 of the baseball season after l- losing the first 149 games. Right. I mean, that's what I want to set up here, Joe. I want to set up the broader context that bothers me here. That the left could come in with the judiciary, as we know, we could have settled, settled law, like you know, like a marriage being a marriage. That's kind of settled. Um, natural law, the building block of civilization. The left could come in in any year and unsettle that. Right immediately, just you know, flick the wrist, and they could always. It's one directional stare decisis, one directional precedent, and then our side just kind of like bakes that into the cake. No pun intended. There, <laughs> it's kind of like you know that that's already done. Like you know, we don't react. It doesn't even bother us, and then we move on from there, and then count each thing as kind of a separate fight rather than accumulative problem. What I mean here is, we had a big problem three years ago, almost to the day. It was June. I mean, a little later in June of 2015, we had Obergefell. That inspired me to write my book, Stolen Sovereignty, about the judiciary and tied into immigration. And what did, we, what did we see? You know, the court redefined marriage, but didn't just redefine marriage. It was the fact that Anthony Kennedy said there's a new positive right to dignity and nobility um, for homosexuals and maybe anyone else loosely related with whatever the broader sexual identity movement will codify into their alphabet soup. And unalienable rights, meaning negative rights that look, you know, I just don't tase me, bro. That has to yield in front of that. And that that was a major problem. And yet I wrote my book not so much because of the opinion, but because of the lack of reaction to it on the right. There was not a single piece of legislation either trying to reform the courts or trying to at least, you know, preserve a defensible retreat line of religious liberty that even pass a committee level, much less the floor. Now we have master cakes, masterpiece case case where um, this one individual, Jack Phillips, got a, a a judgment that the Colorado Civil Rights Commission they were invidious against him. They they acted with animus by not applying their law, forcing anyone to bake a cake for anyone neutrally. So basically, just to cut to the chase, I want to get your reaction first, the opinion, and then the reaction to the reaction. So what we have here is the baseline level should be, as we know, everyone has rights of conscience with their property. We shouldn't need to litigate this. It should be obvious that no state could could make a law doing so. And, and this is very clear in the 14th Amendment, and anyone who understands what it really means, real inalienable rights, negative rights – um, not just a baker. I shouldn't have to serve anything, um, even if it's not some sort of artistic expression that I have to bake. Even if it's just to sell it off my shelf, whether it's um, you know 
a Jew having to put, print up pamphlets for a neo-Nazi rally, whether it's a Muslim having to print up pamphlets for a pro-Israel rally, whether it's religious or political or anything I don't agree with, I shouldn't have to do. Um, but that, already in oral arguments, I saw everyone kind of con- conceded, no, you have to do that. So we're evidently we're okay with it. But baking, maybe that's really First Amendment because that's you're putting in artic- artistic expression. I always knew it would be narrow. But it, Joe, it was even narrower than that. It had nothing to do with the First Amendment. It was just and, and 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 implicitly, you know, a lot of people are saying that. Look, you know, the court kicked the the First Amendment question to a future date. Well, yeah, but it was even worse than that because in this syllable it says while it is unexceptional that Colorado law can protect gay persons in acquiring products and services. Look at look, look at the language. Protect gay persons in acquiring products and services, meaning I, I have a right to your products. Um, the law it says nonetheless the law must be applied in a manner that is neutral toward religion. Um, isn't the court explicitly saying bake the damn cake? You could you that those laws are absolutely fine as long as you apply them neutrally. It appears that way. I mean, obviously we. I mean, as conservatives, we don't want to speculate what a court is going to do in the future on some hypothetical situation. I mean, one of the first things you learn in law school, especially um, when you're dealing with constitutional law or anything where there's an interpretive nature to what the courts have to do with the case, is bad facts make bad law. And the idea of this uh, idiom is that we never get a perfect scenario for creating a, a, a good, solid decision because, one, the court isn't supposed to be in the job of making law. The, the, there's a, sort of an intrinsic uh, joke in there, if you will, in the sense that you're not supposed to be legislating from the bench or I'm trying to coin the term benchislating because the court isn't supposed to do that. So they're not really ever supposed to make positive law um, or and some jurists would would disagree with this, but I I would even go so far as to say that you shouldn't even recognize a new positive law because that's essentially legislating from the bench. But that being said, in this case, that's what the court is doing. It's exactly what you said, which is they're flipping not only what they're supposed to do as the courts, and I mean the lower courts here, but uh, what any court is supposed to do by sort of recognizing or affirming some unwritten uh, affirmative law, and now again we can we can legally debate that. And and, and I I've struck with a broad brush here, but this is exactly what conservatives and and really everybody's doing on social media today, which is they're fighting over the word narrow. Uh, and the reason they're fighting over the word narrow is one, they probably don't understand that narrow is almost a term of art, and and it really yeah. is. Narrow means something. In, in a legal sense, it has nothing to do with the decision itself in terms of the vote. The dis- when we talk of a decision, we don't mean the vote. I mean, obviously, there is a vote, but, but there's a majority. And if a majority wins, then there's a win. Well, what they don't realize is you can also win if, if, the, if the court came down today and it was a 4-4-1, there could also be a win on one side or the other. And you would have to read the case. So is that a narrow win? Or is it a narrow <laughs> loss? Or is it a narrow tie? You can't have a narrow tie because a tie is always narrow by that. I, I mean, so you can see where I'm going with this. Is It's 
it, it, it's frustrating because you have to fight with your own side. They want to chalk up this victory. And I totally get why well, they want to chalk up this victory. Yeah, yeah Joe, why? I, I, that's what I want to explore, why they want the victory. Because, and it sounds snooty, but it's because <laughs> everything has come down to sort of uh, athletic politics. We want to root for the home team. We want it to be red versus blue. We want it to be right versus left because we speak in 240 characters or less. I mean, Twitter every day has redefined politics as it is. It's You talk about this all the time. It's the smart set conservatives, the people who are out there trying to make a quick buck quick name for themselves, and they don't really want to get into the principles for a multitude of reasons. Maybe they're not smart enough. Maybe they are. Maybe they just don't want to do it. Maybe this is the most expedient for them. Maybe they don't really understand it. Maybe it's just to pull the wool over the eyes of whomever, or maybe this is their uh, their strategy to sort of advance the cause. I disagree with that. You disagree with that. And I know a lot of others do. And the problem is, Simply by raising our voices and saying, well, wait a minute, you're, you're wrong here. They just turn around, and I've seen it already on Twitter today, a win is a win, or quit playing semantics, Joe, Daniel, etc. This is a, why do you, why do you always want to be dour? Why do you always want to, you know, be the, be the ones who are negative here? And it's like, we don't, we, we want an authentic win. Like you said, if it's game, you know, 158 of the season, and we've only got 40 wins, I don't care if we blow out the Yankees or the Red Sox 15 to one. Sure, that's a win. But what does that win do for us? It literally does nothing for us. It, it, exactly. See, I, I think there's something a little bit more profound. I think some of it, again, is, is the talking point. And I talked about this a lot last week with jailbreak. Rather than stand on principle and say, hey, it's a problem that conservatives are suddenly supporting something that's not conservative. Like, no. Our side exposed the hypocrisy of the left that we're more into their stuff than they are. Well, that's great, but that's a problem. So it's like, you know, well, you see, the, the court uh, gave us a victory. Well, but but don't we want we don't want a victory in just the political uh, messaging realm. We want one actually in the country. But I think there's also something more profound than that. I think they want a victory because it's a lot easier 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 to take a loss and declare victory rather than understand what you need to do for a truthful victory and actually pursue it. And that's what concerns me here. I mean, I'm I'm looking around and you know, I'm seeing everyone's response and and what my warning to everyone and and I'm going to have a piece coming out on this uh that religious liberty was hanging by a thread before this opinion, now it hangs by a microfiber, and I want to get into why I think it's worse after this opinion. And we still need Congress to act. We need you, – you, you can't wait for the man who broke the system, Anthony Kennedy, somehow that he's going to fix it for you. But it's all about the courts. It's all about judicial supremacism. Why? Because – Oh well, then I got to fight for you know what I believe needs to be civil rights style religious liberty legislation that everyone has the right to abide by their conscience with their private property. Period. Um, and in fact, we're not doing that because it's easier just to call it a day. Hey, Joe, we we won. You know why? Why fight? Um, and you know I want to get back to something you said about narrow victories. I'm all for a court being. An adjudicative body of cases and controversies. Jack Phillips wins in this case, or Jack Phillips doesn't have to pay the fine and doesn't have to do what the Colorado Civil Rights Commission is asking. And that's essentially what this case is. 
It's literally a, vic- a victory for one man, and it will likely never apply in almost any case. This was Animus. They trapped him. Um, the courts, the, the commission made comments about him. Uh, they didn't apply it equally because there were actually reverse cases where bakers didn't want to bake anti-gay cakes, and they were allowed to do that. So, you know, there, there is so, you know, so, I, I believe one of the concurrences even said that it, it was applied before Obergefell even existed. It's never going to apply again. So it's certainly narrow in that sense, right? That, that that's that's for sure. But it's even worse than that. It says neutral over a dozen times in Kennedy's opinion. It's it's very clearly implied that states could absolutely do that. I could go into your house and take a lot of things. Maybe not everything I want, but I could do that. I could force you as a state. States cannot regulate abortion. States cannot uh, require photo ID at the polls. States cannot say only 10 days of early voting, not 15. Uh, states can't do anything. But by golly, states could violate the one thing they can't do, or included in that is like guns is another thing they can't do. Um, and you know the courts have been obviously upholding that. So what I'm bothered by here is, you know, with Obergefell, that was as sweeping as you can get. <laughs> Okay, they they undid marriage. I mean, it was it's nuts. So if you're going to undo marriage, you're required to then have commensurately on the religious liberty side when a case comes up to protect it. But then over and beyond that, it's not that B is immaterial to A. It's that B is built upon A. You see what I'm saying, Joe? If, if I yeah. say I have the right to come in your house, you don't start say, you know beating around the edges. You're like, wait a minute. Fundamentally, do I have the right to go in your house and demand anything? It's kind of like what Judge Karen Henderson said with the abortion illegal immigration case. We're you know, arguing about, well, whether the government is burdening the fundamental BS right of an abortion by not directing granting direct access to a teenage girl, a legal alien to an abortion clinic. And Karen was like, Judge, Judge Henderson was like, wait a minute. Who says you have the right to break in and ask for anything? Didn't we say it's settled law that if you come here illegally, it's as if you're not here? Um, and that's how I feel here. It's not a matter of, oh, look, they just wanted to issue judgment for for um, for this individual, Jack Phillips. Don't you have the obligation to say, uh, well, th- this is, I mean, this is not First Amendment. You don't have the right to someone else's property. They have the right to their own property. Well, there's a lot to unpack there. And you and I have talked about these sorts of cases and and constitutional law uh, to the point where it would bore most people and they'd fall asleep. But let me let me take a couple points. You talked about breaking into a house. Now, you never want to throw hypotheticals around in law. I've said this, you know, a few minutes ago, because when you do, you can always find how your um, your scenario is different from the other scenario. And so that's why it's not the same. Back to my whole thing of bad facts make bad law. But let's just run with yours for a minute. If I feel like this decision and the way conservatives are reacting to it is sort of like you're breaking into the house rule. It's sort of like uh, you break into the house and you say, you know, I as the homeowner say, well, he can't break into my house anytime he wants. And you say, yes, there's seven days in a week and I get to break into your house any day I want. And then I go to the court and say, look, 
on Sundays I have church and I come home and we have family dinner. So he shouldn't do it then. Saturday <laughs> is a day off from school, so he shouldn't do it then. And I argue all the days why you shouldn't. And the court goes, but on Tuesday, literally nobody's home. So it really doesn't bother you. And that's why you have insurance. So uh, he can't break into your house on Tuesday or, or any day except Tuesday. And I go, I win. And conservatives go, see, he won. He he stopped him <laughs> from breaking in the house on Tuesdays and the other days, uh, or, or except for Tuesday. And that's six out of seven days. Six out of seven, that's a win. You know, that's it, that's a six exactly. to one victory. And that's, that's what they're doing. Now, I'm being a little disingenuous and a little unfair because, again, the analogies don't hold up. But that's kind of what they're doing. Like you said, Jack Phillips won. And, and good for him. He should have won. It is a victory for Jack Phillips. But when you go to the Kleins, who is another bakery who is in, yes. in Oregon, does this affect them? Well, y- you'd have to take that question to the court and see what they say. But based on the way that the, the decision was written, it doesn't affect them. It would not cover them in this scenario. If this decision was written and you applied it to their case, my guess would say that the court would not definitely Kagan wouldn't based on what she wrote and and, and some of the others. So I, I don't know what the court would decide if they applied this case to the Klein situation. And let's walk further down the road because it's the point of a Supreme Court case. If you were in a state that did have legalized gay marriage and and someone said this, and let's say they weren't Christian. It, removing the free exercise, but they just said they were an American and said, based on my free speech, I don't want to do this. What would the court decide? We don't know because they yes. didn't address that. And, so the and that's free Clarence speech Thomas. Question, yeah. Claire, I mean, I'm a Clarence Thomas fanboy. I loved, you know, <laughs> Justice Scalia, but I've always liked him because he literally removes most of the passion from it and goes to natural law and says, look, this is what our constitution says. And, and and so when we look at the free speech issue, speech is a right guaranteed by the constitution. The constitution does not give you the right to free speech. Free speech is something that all Americans have. And the constitution guarantees that. Well, what the court literally said is we're not going to answer whether or not Jack Phillips constitutionally guaranteed right is applicable or even comes into play here. They just didn't address it. So if you remove him being a Christian, the case isn't solved. And then you say, well, if he's not a Christian, he doesn't have a right to do it. Why? It's and it's, a, it's an expression, you know, they're making him give an affirmative expression of free speech. Why should someone be forced to give up. So that question was, and that's the problem here. So when you say a win is a win and that this was a landslide and this was a route, I say uh, for Jack Phillips, maybe it is, but who, for whom else is it? Exactly. And also, like I said, the way we started out the show, you can't look at anything in politics. And, and this is, you know, this is since, since the days you and I were together on this show, this has been the hallmark of our show to look at everything broadly, juxtapose multiple policy issues to one another, multiple f- political phenomenons, because you got to look broadly what's happening in the courts. And another case, you mentioned the clients, but we had we had Stormins. That was the yes. pharmacy in Washington State that um, the local you know laws and then the Ninth Circuit upholding a forced a pharmacy to cover or to provide 
Imagine saying you got to stock all types of mustard on your, you know, shelf. You have to stock all, you know, all types of um, uh, abortifacients, uh, contraceptions in your uh, pharmacy shelves. And even though the stuff was actually available in tons of pharmacies within 25 miles, and the Supreme Court didn't take it up. They, they, that's another. This is a whole growing trend. They refuse. So that that is like making a statement. And even Roberts dissented from the denial of cert there, but obviously Kennedy not. So there are only three judges there. I believe Scalia was you know already dead then. So there are only three. Um, we didn't have enough, and they didn't bring it up. That's where Kennedy is on this issue. We know where he is on the broader issue of you must provide, you must service, and I want to take this a, a step further. In this case. It wasn't just the Supreme Court originally bringing this up. It went to the Colorado Court of Appeals, and then the Supreme Court upheld the Colorado Court of Appeals. So the so when you're reversing a decision, you have to address what they said. And the Colorado right. Court said what, – what Kennedy is essentially saying even by reversing but not really reversing is that um, government has the power to coerce individuals into protecting the dignity of – of certain classes, in this case the homosexual, and Thomas said very clearly these justifications are completely foreign to our free speech jurisprudence. And what he said is that you know um, it's hard to quote. It's hard to see how this statement, you know what what the Phillips, uh, what Jack Phillips did, stigmatizes gays and lesbians more than blocking them from marching in a city parade, which is something the court has upheld before, dismissing them from the boycotts. Boy Scouts, which they upheld before, or subjecting them to signs that say God hates fags. Right? You I mean, we'd all say that that is more offensive than anything Jack Phillips did, and yet courts in the past have upheld that when it wasn't in this context. My concern is we're once again reversing basic jurisprudence on First Amendment um just to coincide with this newfangled right. Um and Kennedy didn't directly do it. But by golly, it's pretty implied when he talks about balancing the dignity there. I mean, and and, neutra- and you know neutrality in law. So that's what concerns me. It's not just oh, let's take a partial victory. It's that he basically tipped his hand. You know what I mean? You can have a case where it's very narrow, but it you know doesn't imply where they'd be in ninety nine percent of other cases. Here, I think it's pretty clear that in almost every other case, at least five ju- justices would be on the other side. Right. <sighs> And the problem with talking about law is that it's it's not simple. It's not easy to understand. I do not claim to be an expert. I was fortunate to study under some amazing professors who were rooted in the natural law. As a Catholic myself, we believe that natural law descends from God. And Thomas Aquinas, who I am a huge fan of, uh, you know, talks a lot about natural law as an Aristotelian Thomist. You know, these are words that are not in the parlance of everyday Americans. And that's okay. It's the same way that, you know, I replaced my brakes on my on my vehicle this weekend. It took me a lot longer than a mechanic would take because I'm not versed in it. I don't do it every day. I had to look up and make sure, you know, I, I knew what I was doing. I had to, you know, go back and get a different tool from the store because I forgot that I didn't have it. That's okay. No one expects me to be a mechanic. Now, can I get through it? Sure. The same way that a person can sit down and read these different things and come to understand it. Now, to get to the you know fluency of, of an everyday constitutional lawyer like 
Justice Thomas would take years of reading and, and understanding, and you have to build from a base. I say all of that to make this point. Natural law uh, is, is a very certain strain of jurisprudence. Uh, I had the amazing and blessed uh, fortune to have taken some classes with Justice Robert Bork before he passed um, because of where I went to school. Now, Justice Bork was not a natural lawyer in the true sense, not the way that Thomas and Scalia were. One, uh, just because that's that's not what he was, too, because his Catholicism came about in a different way than Scalia and Thomas's did. Uh, that had a part to play in a few other things. But one of the reasons that he was brought in to teach uh, at our school, which is a natural law school, was because his belief of the way that law works actually coincided with natural law from a different angle. So it was really interesting um, because our, our dean at the time was a natural lawyer and they gave this, this class. And what they always said was, at the end of the day, when you have a constitutional republic the way we do, Congress is supposed to make the laws. So it doesn't matter if you're a natural lawyer or not, because uh, the, the positive law, meaning the written law, comes from the Congress itself. So when you and I talk about this, it's okay to say that the decision was narrow. It doesn't mean that we're being poor sports. It doesn't mean that we're being negative. What it really means is it says, okay, now what? If we yes. want to protect the next Jack Phillips, if we want to protect the next Kleins, the, you know, the, all the people down the road, those little sisters of the poor, and we have these constitutionally guaranteed rights, if that isn't enough because those rights are either too broad or they don't address the specific thing or we just want the law to say something else, we can go to Congress and say, Congress, write this law. Now, then Congress writes the law. Then it's up to the courts to say it's unconstitutional because it goes against some constitutionally protected right. Now, that's where the fight should be. Unfortunately, the fight here isn't even at that level yeah. because, like I just said a few minutes ago, it didn't even address the free speech issue. Now we can over we can argue whether or not it should have or shouldn't have, but it didn't. Exactly. Like, we can't we we literally don't even get to have that decision right and, now. And we're losing in every day in in the states where there's like you said so many of these other people aren't getting relief and they're not going to from this case. Right. I mean I, that th that's the problem here. I just th this gets to another point I want to talk about and, and this is again a general issue with I think particularly conservative, professional conservatives as it relates to um, the legal sphere, but really po politics in general, the soft bigotry of low expectations. I mean, they're just – we get sucked into this Sodom and Gomorrah where things get worse and worse, and they always get worse, and the left wants to take it even to a more extreme level. And we're like, well, at least it wasn't that, or they wanted to take it here. Well, relative to that, let's fight the media on this, and we don't realize all the while we're just – we're losing and losing and losing. I want to give an example of something lesser known that happened today. Similar situation that I think it really aptly, you know, brings out what we're trying to to say here. And that's, you know, one of the most radical cases among all the immigration case, cases that we've had the last two three years. 
that have literally immigration is such a good case study. I wrote my whole book, Stolen Sovereignty, on this because I want to show people how within a few years the judiciary could take what they themselves called a settled law that the political branches could do whatever they want with foreign nationals, meaning not do whatever they want, beat them up, but do whatever they want in the context of immigration and deportation and the right to enter. There is no such right. Um, there are no due process rights against deportation proceedings. Um, it is up to the pleasure of the people. That is sovereignty. It is the you know Justice Jackson back in the fifties says it was the most settled area of law. Um, and then within a couple of years, they're like, no, screw you. We're we're going to change things. Now, like anything, it doesn't happen in a linear line. It's not like they'll win a hundred cases in a row. They'll win forty of them get stalled out on five, maybe lose five. But if you look in totality, they're winning light years within a matter of a year or two. And so we had another victory, so to speak, today in the Supreme Court where they remanded back a D.C. Circuit, D.C. Court of Appeals opinion uh, demanding that the Office of Refugee Resettlement grant this illegal alien teenager access to an abortion. Now, she already had the abortion. Which again, I think that in itself shows, you know, the unfortunate nature of lower court supremacy. Even when the Supreme Court agrees with us, you know, we we suffer outcomes from it. In this case, there was an abortion that was done. But moreover, um, you know, as we're talking, I'm just emailing some of my uh, immigration legal guys, and they said this is very narrow. I was like, is this going to shut down? Because it's not just in D.C. It's in the Ninth Circuit. There's a whole growing growing trend of granting rights to come here. I call it abortion chain migration. Come here and demand an abortion if your home country doesn't allow elective abortions, as Mexico does not. Um, and he said, no, it does not stop that. And I, I want you to give – you have a good way of explain, explaining this, the broader sense. We don't win Rose. We don't win Obergefell's. We don't win sweeping th- things. That, that's the thing. So they win sweeping things, and even when we win, we don't win. You look at Heller. Now, we shouldn't even have to fight for gun rights because it's in the Constitution directly, but fine. We finally won it. Eight years later, the, the lower courts pretty much abolished it. The Supreme Court won't take it up. You look at Hobby Lobby. It was That, that was supposed to be that employers don't have to cover abortifacients. The, the Obama administration came back and tweaked it slightly. And uh, the courts pretty much are like you know upholding it, and the lower courts are now saying Trump must continue that policy. Um, just in, today, another judge, federal judge, said in a D.C. district court that Trump must continue Obama's um, teen pregnancy abortion programs that never existed until Obama created them, not at a statute administratively. I'm looking broadly and. What about the courts do our conservative colleagues don't get and some of your colleagues in the legal profession don't get? I mean, and this is always going to be the problem. As you're talking, I'm sitting here thinking about the the immigration cases, which isn't my forte. I mean, that's obviously right up your, you know, your alley. And I'm thinking about it. In that sense, I'm I'm thinking, okay, I'm a little more naive. Listen to what Daniel's saying and think about how this is going to 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 apply. And one of the things that that I was thinking about is um, I saw a tweet not too long ago, just before we came on from Ryan Anderson. Um, and and Ryan Anderson is is very smart. I don't always agree with everything he he says, but he's I mean a a leader 
um, in the way to think about especially same-sex marriage and, and, and gay marriage. And what he said today is that today, seven justices of the Supreme Court repeated what they said in Oberfell. Religious and philosophical objections to gay marriage are protected views in some instances, protected <laughs> forms of expression. And what people that I'm objecting to on the right um, – are missing and don't realize is that when you uh, write a brief or when you argue cases in uh, especially the lower courts, you're using Supreme Court cases, but you're not just using a seven to two case. It's not like you stand up there. And of course, some will. I mean, if I'm a lawyer and, and I have a case and I say, well, seven of the justices, but a good judge is going to sit back and go, but what do they say in that case? And that's the thing. If I'm a lawyer on the left, I'm going today, man, uh, this is this is useful and helpful to me in the sense that exactly what Anderson said, that people are going to now be able are going to now be able to use this case to say, well, yes, you're right. A, a, a person of religion, you know, Christian religious persuasion can make a religious argument that they don't have to be forcibly made to do something in a religious sense when somebody else comes, you know, and they're going to use this to narrowly tailor the few instances when Christians can't do something. And so what have you effectively done? You've effectively made a law that says the opposite. The opposite, of, yes. Of really what what Phillips and others were going in there doing. Now, I don't blame the you know Alliance for taking the case. I don't Sure, Alliance you know, Defending Freedom. Yeah, yeah good guys. Yeah, or 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 Phillips or any of these people, they had to. This was his his case, so they had to go and do this. But what the court kind of did, and why I think some of the people like Hagen said this was like, sure, you're right, this is an egregious case, <laughs> but this is the extreme. So what they did is they put down a marker and they said everything to the to the other side of this is probably acceptable, right? And then we're going, oh man, you know, and Th- this that's is why. My point. I think you this know, is a loss. I think it's a loss. I won't go that far. I mean, <laughs> no, I not, will, not I, for I, Phillips. I mean, I don't blame him for bringing it up. And and no, well, no, it's not a loss in the sense that we're worse off because of it, because I think we were like this anyway. Meaning it's not that this created it. We knew Kennedy and Kagan. It's not enough. We can't sit and now rest on this our laurels. To say that this is some sort of home run, runaway, landslide, etc., that that makes it a loss in the sense that we're going to like sit back and and you know let the let the raccoons raid the hen house now no it does not mean that our 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 fences work it does not mean that our our you know laws are are operating correctly what it's saying is okay the court even recognizes this is too far now let's take this as a jump board and a springboard and go to the next step but i see nobody saying that today no when you say this is a slam dunk it does the opposite if you're you know to use our sports analogies. If you want to see this as a home run, fine. Let's go out tomorrow and win the next game and the next game and the next game. And nobody's saying that. They want this to be the end all be all. And it should not be. And it is not. And it cannot be if we really want to protect not only religious freedoms, but the rest of the things under the First Amendment that we're supposed to be protecting. And that's the problem that what we don't understand is the 
the fact that the courts are a one-way street and a dead end for us. See, what people don't realize is a, a, a loss is always a loss, but a win is not always a win, not because it has to be that way, but just because this is the way the legal system works. They control the at-bats at the court. They control the velocity. They control the law school. And we understand that as long as – look, had, had it this gone the other way, then yeah, you're right. It would have been devastating because then it would have been 100% sure – you lose 100% of your religious liberty in these contexts, um, and you can never get it back, right? right? Just like you can never get back Roe and Obergefell. We never reverse it. But first of all, from this this vantage point, they could always reverse. And then when I say reverse, sometimes they directly reverse. Other times, as you all know, throughout our First Amendment jurisprudence, and Clarence Thomas you know, points that here, it's all over the map. I mean, let's face it. There's no magical potion. I mean, when you look at the establishment clause stuff, it is. So, I mean, everyone on all sides agrees it's so screwed up. There's no way you could harm, harmonize all the different opinions. They contradict themselves. So the point is, you know, they could always walk this off, and indeed, they have by omission in the past. The lower courts have directly hurt us on it, and I would argue, like, you know, on the individual question, we haven't even scraped the surface whether. It, it, it could an individual come to you and say, you must bake me a cake, and then if you don't, take you to court. See, in this case, it was the state government fining the guy. So that's that's where you know Phillips took them to court. But what's to stop an individual from taking you to court and saying, you're discriminating against me? Now, I would argue, well, say, well where's your standing? Who says you have a right to someone else's you – know, well, what, huh? It's a, you know, I'm saying we're right. not talking about a law, just someone, someone else just demanding a service. But you know that ship has sailed. I've lost that debate. All those cases are actionable in court. I see them every day. Um, there's all sorts of cases where Muslims are taking people to court. There's claiming they were fired or not hired or this or that. Um, and 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 again, you're going to have this with a lot of other cases. You have it with the transgenderism now, where people come in with all sorts of very disruptive behavior at the workplace. Than any other time, like, dude, I don't care if I hate or love you. There's nothing to do with that. But I can't have you, uh, you know, a man dressing as a woman is very disruptive in certain workforces. You know, none of this stuff is covered. None of it is covered. And in fact, it's covered the other way. They're not only not affirming the First Amendment right of the property owner, they're creating a First Amendment right to shove your lifestyle on someone else's property, someone else's business. I'm not even talking about a more neutral governmental setting. I'm talking about even you know, a private employer. And I'm just concerned that it's – I want to get your comment on the next big case. Right, let's end off with the next big case because this is where it's headed. Right. The, the next big case is going to be the so-called travel ban case. And from day one, I said, if I had to predict, of course, we're going to get at least five to four victories, so to speak. But there's something called the plenary power doctrine, which I alluded right. to before, that the, the, the president and Congress, they have the right to exclude anyone they want for any reason. I mean, that's, that's just sovereignty. That, that's always been the case, whether it's invidious or not, whether it's discriminatory or not. There is no discrimination as it relates to immigration law, the right to come here. Um, you know, I don't have to prove that I have sufficient reason to um, not have X and X number of visas from Angola or Madagascar or Yemen or Somalia or China or Russia. Um, but my fear was, and you saw it a little bit on the preliminary injunction side of the litigation, the split between the five four and then 
Alito, Gorsuch, and Thomas, who had a concurrence saying this whole thing is BS. That's what I'm worried about, that we're going to have another similar thing. Conservatives will be like, oh, my God, Trump won, Trump won. And meanwhile, they don't realize there's 50 other spheres of litigation going on in the lower courts that they're upholding against uh, settled law, blocking deportations, saying deportations are immoral. But the narrow case of, yes, a president still has the ability during a time of war when he's worried about national security and there's no clear vetting systems from these countries. Because remember, like Chad, which wasn't cooperating, and he took them, put them on the list, and now they're cooperating. He took them off. Um, you know, why can't I just say I don't want people from Chad? No, it's that's not even the case anymore. It's just like, look, they're not even cooperating. I don't have data. That's what I'm worried about. And again, the movie will be like, man, the Supreme Court is awesome. What would we do without them? <laughs> this is this goes back to kind of like my argument about what days you can and can't break into my house. It's one of the things that we see with the Second Amendment all the time. I mean, when you look at the different doctrines about um, self and home defense, I mean, there is a you know some of the states still have the the um, duty to retreat and and things like that and. Uh, they operate legally a little different, and, and we've gotten to those things a little differently, but the, the concept stands. When you talk about the travel ban, you're right. When you look at it from just a simply a legalistic standpoint, it should at least be a 5-4 decision that Trump is allowed to do it. Now, based on the arguments that are there, you could find a lot of reasons to challenge it outside of the, the legal uh, – the outside of the courts in the sense of how it comes about and why and whatnot. But that's not what we have before. So it should be a 5-4 at least case. And like you said, the right is going to you know throw up their hands and say, Trump won. Boom. But again, to use another analogy to say like why a win isn't a win there is, well, he should. It, it, it'd sort of be like saying um, – the break into my house thing. You can't break into my house. Well, I can break into your house if I'm really, really hungry. And we have exceptions <laughs> like that. For example, if you live in a house and there's another house really close to you, and the only way that the fire department can put it out, they can come in, you know, in most jurisdictions into your house in, this, in an emergency to save that other house. Not only because you want your house saved and other houses around you saved, but I mean, They'll pay you back and there'll be all these things. So to say that, like, you know, uh, well, I can break in because the fire department can break in and you're like, well, no. And you're like, oh, the court upheld that you won because they didn't let somebody break into your house. Well, (laughs) great. I I mean, sure, you won, but you should have like it. It it didn't move the ball. Anyway, on the move field. the ball. The, the, I, I, There's already Joe, a law there. I, I, I mean, don't, the law already is there, and that, that's the thing. All the court's saying is the law is the law is the law, and you're like, well, well thank you, court, for saying that. All all it proved is that like the idiots bringing the case were like trying to pull a fast one, and we didn't allow them. And meanwhile, in many other similar cases, they downright not only give standing to things that shouldn't have standing in court, they they actually rule with them, and and you know th- that's what bothers me. It's like. We have to fight 
to, to the death to maybe get narrowly to the Supreme Court that illegals don't have the right to break in our country and demand sex change operations and, and abortions. Like, what the hell? I mean, that should never even get in there. And that's what's bothering me. Again, the soft bigotry of low expectation. It's never going to happen one directionally, like, you know, a complete momentum where there's no stalled out roadblocks to the left's agenda. You know, they'll lose a couple of cases, but they're not victories. They're defensive victories for us. It's like the case we spoke about offline. I was telling people about, you know, how much... So it's pretty amazing. One of the three, four, five victories you could say that were big over the last 10 years in court, um, one of them was Shelby County. And and that was a case that invalidated part of the Voting Rights Act, one section of it that required pre-clearance, um, you know, of, of the, you know, basically... Uh, treated the South like innocent until uh, guilty until proven innocent. That you know they still back from the Civil Rights era had to pre-clear all their uh, districts with the courts. And what happened was you think, oh, that was that was pretty transformational. And I remember, you know, it's amazing. The same conservatives that refused to push an Obergefell fix, a row fix with the courts, um, they were actually Eric Kander, I remember, and James Sensenbrenner were pushing a Shelby County fix to actually reinstate, that, you know, parts of of the VRA that that got struck down. But then, what interestingly enough, in the ensuing years, what happened since then is that. We have gotten crushed on election law. So, ironically, even districts upheld and pre-cleared by Obama's uh, DOJ in North Carolina got struck down. Everything wanted got struck down. Um, You can't have photo ID. um, Any basic election law when Article 1, Section 4 allows states to fully regulate the time, methods, and procedures of elections, uh, uh, you know, um, they can't do, just like – uh, Kennedy told us in Windsor they could regulate marriage. Oh, but, well, they can't do it. Um, they can't do anything. So one of the things was, I mean, look, you, you could debate the policy ramifications and the political arguments of early voting. Do you want it? Do you not want it? But the notion that there is a constitutional right to early voting is insane. But nonetheless, the court started to create it. And I'll never forget when in one week – you know, after just a slew of just crazy losses on election law, um, so one court upheld, um, or not upheld, or you know, entertained the lawsuit from the ACLU. I believe it wasn't in Ohio, but it was in the same Sixth Circuit. It was one of these cases. Um, no, you, you got to have ten days of early voting. Okay, then in Ohio that same week, there was a case where we supposedly won. Where they were trying, where the district court was forcing them to in Ohio to have 30 days of early voting and same day registration, they called like Super Day or something at the same time. Right. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot more going on there, and they said, no, 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 you don't have to go that far. And I remember seeing on the email list, my friends were like celebrating that. <laughs> I'm thinking, what am I missing? Did they not understand that they're kind of moving with the rotation of the Earth? <laughs> right. Right. I, I mean, and this is again what makes it hard to discuss legal issues when it comes to sort of social media and the and the you know smart set conservatives is that and and I don't say that to really like demean them. It's it's a little bit of a jab, you know, but <laughs> it's 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 because uh, I don't know. I mean, for a long time, I mean, I grew up listening to talk radio, and 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 my dad did, and 
so I would I would hear it and you would all always hear things like legislating from the bench and you know you wrote an entire book on it and it's hard for people to understand the behemoth that is the judiciary when you go from the Supreme Court down to the the federal level and then you go down into the state Supreme Courts and just how all this operates and it just builds and builds and builds and if I if I could give anybody one piece of advice in terms of how to look at the way our republic is supposed to work, I would point them in at, at one very you know specific thing, and that was the very first Supreme Court uh, Chief Justice uh, left, like resigned because he thought the job was going to be too boring, and and in the idea that that he I think he went back and became governor of one of the small states or, or maybe attorney general. I, I, I forget off the top of my head. But the idea and the notion there was that the Supreme Court was literally going to just sort of say, yes, you're following the law or not following the law. Yep. And, 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 and Scalia was famous for saying, I mean, a law might be a stupid law, but if you don't want it or you want it, you need to go to Congress. Like my job is to say, you know, either what the law is or whether or not it's constitutional, um, not to say that this is what the law says that you wrote. That's that's Congress's job. Their job, when you know, when people hear the word "interpret the law," it's not for them to say that oh, the law should mean not only what you said, but also this because you didn't get around to writing it, or because you said A B C. We know that the alphabet goes all the way to Z. So let me tell you the other things that it also means. No. It means that if you wrote a law and it means A, B, C, that's what it means. That's what it encompasses. Um, and yet we've allowed the courts to do all these things over the last couple of decades for for a multitude of reasons. One, people got sick of, you know, people hate Congress, right? They hate Congress. Yep. And so I, I, I don't know. Maybe it's that because they hate Congress so much they don't want to deal with it. So they're fine with the judges they creating are. the law. I mean, I, I, I people always ask, well, what are we supposed to do about it? You know, it's the whole but Gorsuch, you know, that's that's become a thing in conservative circles to say that, like, uh, oh, you know, Trump, Trump is uh, winning because Gorsuch. Well, Gorsuch, fine. What, you know, take them, leave them, whatever. But there are so many judges, and, and Obama did so much that it, it it will take at least eight years to undo what he did because that's about the time it would take to undo all his appointments. And then we look at Bush, and then we look at just sort of how <laughs> we drifted. I mean, even Reagan. Look at the people Reagan appointed to the Supreme Court. And you look at what they the did. The Seventh Circuit, you know, uh, Ilana Rovner, and you got Posner, and now we're replacing him. But you got some really bad ones. And and again, yeah. it's just also the point that you can't – once you're going to say that the court system is supreme, including the lower courts, just are supreme on public policy issues. And then you're going to have a system where one side lies, cheats, and steals, and the other side is so into being narrow and this and that. So then you're done. I mean, you're done. You're not going to win. You can't win. If if one side could unsettled, settled law in a second, and the other side, once they do that one time, will regard that as pretty much settled but beat around the edges, you know, at best, winning looks like, yeah, you kind of slow down the velocity of them getting even worse into the jurisprudence than before. But you, we, we never go the other way. And in fact, no. Joe, I was just going to say that, you know, there's enough nuclear jurisprudence 
on the docket already to destroy this country seven times over, even if they don't, you know, right. expand it. And, you know, that needs to be dealt with. And certain things, look, I, I understand that, you know, forget about legalities and pol- uh, of the judiciary system. Talk about just politics, the political system, social security, certain government interventions. Um, I'm resigned to the fact, yeah, I mean, they're, they're, they're there. And I would take substantial rollbacks of the um, Leviathan not involving that as a big victory, even though, you know, but, you know, that, that, that cake is baked. But certain things we don't have to accept, nor should we, nor can we. I mean, we have literally hanging by a thread whether you could abide by your conscience with your property. That is the most foundational right that Sam Adams said. You know, he got up there. In the uh, Pennsylvania legislature, uh, three weeks before the commencement of the Revolutionary War, and, and he basically said, "Look, you know, this is a contest over whether we will be the last asylum for religious and civil liberty on this earth." I mean, uh, are, are are we gonna just put that in in Anthony Kennedy's casino? <laughs> I'll leave you with this. I I, I know we, we've gone a little long, and yeah, you, you have other go. things to talk about. Um, you know, you learn in civics or government or whatever class you have that we have allegedly three co-equal branches of government. And then we talk about checks and balances. So if we go from that premise, which I believe to be true because that's what the founding documents say, that's how our country is set up. If if we believe that that is true, then what happens and how do the checks and balances work against a court, say the Supreme Court, that goes too far. If 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 we believe that this is a win is a win is a win, then what happens when a loss is a loss is a loss, but we believe that loss to be improper because the courts went too far above and beyond their proper role in as a co-equal branch of government, who places the checks and balances on them and how does that operate? And I would bet you that the conservatives don't know how to properly answer that. One, I say that because I've never seen anyone articulate that from the people, at least from the group today that's been you know, saying a win is a win is a win. And two, it's a very difficult question for this reason. The courts, the way that they operate today, are in almost every decision going above and beyond their proper role because for the last few decades that's just how they've been operating that's their new mo that's their new normal business so we haven't seen it in a while we really literally haven't seen it and so when people say trump has gone too far the courts have to check them congress has to check them i would say okay let's argue that but nobody argues that the court has overstepped it we have not seen no. that happen no, this in, is what in the last at least decade i haven't seen it no matter what they do i mean we had a judge say that there's a right for someone to have not just any access because anyone could have access to someone's twitter account but direct following through that uh, Twitter account access to Trump's Twitter and like no one bats an eyelash. I mean, this is a big problem when we have courts doing this. And, and look, this gets back to, um, it's as old as, as the Lincoln Douglas debates that Lincoln said emphatically during the sixth debate with Douglas that, 
you know, look, if you want to have a um, Dred Scott opinion that applies to that case, fine. But if you're going to make that binding precedent on a broadly political issue that's going to be binding over the next president, over Congress, no. I mean, we have the right to push back against that. Um, if, if we have the right and indeed the responsibility to interpret the Constitution the way we see it. And that's what bothers me, what I'm seeing from conservatives. They're implicitly agreeing that the Constitution only goes as far or farther, in some cases, as the court says it does. And it's like, well, the court said this. Well, the court – well, no, you get on the playing field. This is like yeah. – it, it's a, it's the classic case of adverse possession, squatters' rights, where you know Congress and I would argue just the body politic in general had just ceded constitutional interpretation to the courts. The courts are like, all right, we'll take it. You know, you give it to us, we'll take it. And then what bothers me is that – you know we're we're so concerned about about the courts of oh gosh they get involved and everything but then you know once they break a problem we count upon them to solve it and yes. that's my bottom line my bottom line is i believe that that conscience mixed with property is the most unalienable right around and that you know i'm a big states powers guy but this is one thing that a state does not have the right to do. Even a state, much less federal government, um, does not have the right to do. And it's just right. it, it, it's it's that simple. You know, Joe, I wanna I wanna read this to you. I know you got to run in, in a minute here, um, but I'm trying trying to find this. You know, the one of the first treaties written on the Fourteenth Amendment. It's really fascinating and explains. Um, where is this? It, it, it was Daniel Webster's law partner, and he wrote it. it. It must have been 1868, I mean, right after the 14th Amendment was ratified. And he explains what the 14th Amendment means. And it's amazing how you know everything has been thrown into the 14th Amendment. But the few things that it did actually enforce upon the states were the bare minimum life, liberty, and property. And right. he actually gives examples of what it means that even a state can't do. And the two things he mentions are conscience and um, self-defense. <laughs> and, and those are the two things we're right. allowing. I, you know, you, you don't have it in Michigan yet, but I have it here in Maryland with guns. Um, we're, we're allowing that. And, and we're looking to the courts to help us and, you know they're not, and in fact they're they're clamping down on it, and we're just happy to get whatever crumbs we have from the courts. And it just it just concerns me that we don't take our own destiny in our own hands, even as a conservative movement. No, we don't. And 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 I think you hit the nail right on the head there. That when we're talking about fundamental rights, I mean a lot of these words have become buzzy and they've become almost cliche, but they're important principles. If we're not starting from the principles of, you know, inalienable rights and we're not starting from the pr- principle of constitutionally protected rights that descend, you know, endowed by our creator and things like that. I mean, you don't have to be a Christian necessarily to believe in natural rights. You can believe that natural law descends simply from the humanity and the sanctity of human life. I mean, anybody would say a person is right and free to be alive in themselves. That's the basic civil right that a person is, you know, once, even if you don't believe in, you know, uh, the pro-life movement, even if you're a a pro-abortion person, you believe that once you're born, you have a right to life. Now, we're even challenging that. And that right there shows the insanity of the court, that at some point, you no longer have 
the right to your own freedom to live life. And and, and then you, as you yep. extrapolate that, like you said, that goes into, you know, the basic right of property and, you know, life, liberty and property. Those are explicit. You know, it was changed for, you know, life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness because the idea that the pursuit of happiness not only was property, but other things even beyond that, property is the most limited view of that. So if we're taking the most limited view, I, I, again, I, the, the courts have run amok. Um, even the conservative judges, I think, are trying to play the game. And the second you play the game, you've admitted you're, you're playing exactly. by their rules and you've lost. Exactly. They don't have any rules. And we cannot – I've seen it so many times how conservative mentality on the courts, even when it's principled, mixed with the unprincipled stance of the liberal justices, it screws us in all ends. It's a one-way street. It's a dead end. Um, it, it doesn't work. It's never going to work for us. And today, I mean, again, I'm even more surprised. It's even narrower than I thought it was going to be. And implicit in that is is that, again, you know, it's not worth debating backwards whether uh, how narrow right. this narrow. It's forward to understand that we need to do something about the judiciary. We need jurisdiction stripping. We need to debate that at least, um, especially on immigration. We need to protect religious liberty in statute. Um you know, we we need to challenge the courts. We need to get on the playing field, and and my concern is what they're doing today is like you know doing an end zone dance, except they're at their own one yard line, ninety nine yeah. yards away, and do like you know you didn't you didn't win anything. Um, yeah, I guess relative to to Jack Phillips not not getting a ruling in his favor, it's better. But um, you know, this is the same movement that has failed to pressure Congress uh to to move for an Obergefell fix even if it's not just on marriage, even just on religious liberty for three years. So this is, this is really, really concerning to me. And, uh, Hey Joe, like, you know, we, we, we need you to come back again. You know, <laughs> I, I, I love, I love it. I love chatting with you and especially on important issues like this. So anytime. Alrighty folks, that was Joe Koss, my former co-host. And, you know, we really enjoyed it together. Uh, very fond memories of our early days when we just had a couple hundred listeners and now we've grown, uh, so large and you know thank god thank you know and and i'm really thankful to to you guys listening and being so supportive um i know so many of you want to dig deeper and you're looking for more than talking points oh seven to two seven to two we want well what do we win what's the context what is this built off of where is this headed what are the other cases i i, I say this not to be down but because we need civil rights legislation. At some point, you have to realize we are losing broadly the issue. And yeah, I mean, you know, let me put a different spin on it. Fine, today's a victory. Use it as momentum. Use it as momentum. Now say, look, you know, here's what conservatives should be saying. Here's a valid way of using the seven to two argument. Look, even the godly justices of the Supreme Court agreed with us, and even two of the liberal ones did seven to two. Therefore, we need religious liberty legislation codifying this to ensure that in the future we don't roll this back. Because let me tell you, in a few years, we are going to lose this issue if we don't do anything. And and we already are in many states. You know, There's a lot of people that have suffered greatly, and they haven't gotten the relief that Jack Phillips got today. So and and even then, by the way, I would argue that based on the way the case is written, even for Jack Phillips, the the Colorado Civil Rights Commission, I believe, could hold a hearing and open up the case again under different, you know, just different scrutiny. So, you know, it could be they won't do it politically just be, because of the case, but 
I'm just trying to show you how narrow it is, even even for this individual case. Um, but th- but there you have it, folks. This is happening on every other issue, where there are a hundred pieces of litigation that should never even make it to court that get to court. We shouldn't have to defend in court, and yet we'll lose a lot of them. We'll lose a lot of them in the lower courts. Supreme Court won't take it up. Once in a while, we'll win a narrow one in the Supreme Court, and then even then, it will get chipped away at over the next few years. And that's the thing. I mean, even a broader opinion, like Heller, which you would think was broader, it got narrowed. Certainly, you take something like this, forget it. I mean, it's a joke. We need civil rights-style legislation. Okay? The Constitution describes relationships between three entities, the individual, the state, and the federal government. The entire purpose of the federal government was not to add more burdens and tyranny upon the individual, but to protect their unalienable rights where states lack the wherewithal or the will to do so. That is why we have a federal government. That's what civil rights-style legislation is for. Okay? For example, this is actually, and the irony of all ironies, why immigration policy was given over to the federal government. In the words of the great founder Roger Sherman, one of the greatest of all, quote, in order to prevent particular states receiving citizens and forcing them upon others who would not have received them in any other manner. Right? It was to prevent states from screwing the rest of the union with immigration. Same thing with the Commerce Clause. The Commerce Clause was never meant to be used as a tool to grow the federal government. Quite the contrary, it was designed as a safeguard against the abuse among the states. This applies doubly to religious liberty. States have wide latitude to regulate activities within their jurisdictions. A state has, but a state clearly has no right to violate the preamble of the Declaration rooted in religious liberty, property rights, the same way they, they had no right to usurp the liberties and property rights of African-American citizens for, for so many decades. They don't have that right. You know, <clears throat> one of the rights that we just mentioned, you know, as I was talking with Joe, that even a state doesn't have the right to take is gun rights. But here we are. Gun rights are under assault. I got news for you folks. We now have a situation where even gun accessory manufacturers, accessory companies, such as holster makers, cannot advertise anywhere. Facebook and other social media platforms are actually censoring them. And I'm not talking about advocacy, like politically, just to sell their products. This is why I need you guys to support our new sponsor, We The People Holsters. Go to wethepeopleholsters.com forward slash conservative. And you will see an array of solid custom-made holsters, the best made in America. And by the way, all the, all the parts are made in America. What if I told you that you could help support this program, our values, gun rights, and get yourself a really quality, high-quality holster for just 24 bucks and free shipping tomorrow? You better believe it. These, by the way, these guys are the best conservatives around. We the people holsters, they are really good folks. But they also, you know, you figure, all right, you know, you want to support people with your values. I am sitting with me right now, my outside the waistband, 
VP9, H&K VP9 holster to hold my 9mm. Now, I always get outside the waistband because in this communist state of Maryland, I can't carry outside my home. So it's more for tactical tactical shooting or, frankly, in my own home. Even during the day, I'm always scared. And I am recording now for my home studio. But uh, they, they sell an, an array of inside the waistband as well. The Kydex is custom-made. They do not outsource to third-party molds for holsters. They, div- they, they design it right in their home, um, which I believe is based in Vegas. And they cut every mold perfectly. They update the designs that change. They add new designs every month, and they stay up to date with all the models. It is is a truly perfect, perfect fit. I just love that click, you know, because holsters are always a balance between um, security, but then you want them to have that agility that you could easily draw. And I am telling you, I tried my We the People holster um, at the gun range to do some draw shooting. And it was, it was really good. They also have some cool t-shirts, cool um, custom designs. You could have, you know, constitution camo American flag put on your holster. So here's the deal. You go to we, the people holsters.com forward slash conservative, and you put in promo code conservative. You'll get $10 off your first holster. So if they start at 34 bucks there, be just for 24 bucks and free shipping folks. We, the people holsters, they take pride in their custom designs, and they share our values. And I'm telling you, with MS-13, with criminal justice reform, and we're going to talk about that later this week. We have another article coming out tomorrow. Um, let me tell you, there's going to be a lot of criminals released in your neighborhood. Crime is going up. You are going to need a perfect holster that you could draw, God forbid if you need it, at any given time, but also a company that shares our values and is a very, very proud and enthusiastic sponsor of the conservative conscience. That is We the People Holsters. Folks, I didn't even scrape the surface with the courts. You know I could talk forever about the courts, but I'm glad you got to hear my perspective as well as Joe Koss. Joe's a really good guy, by the way. He's one of these unsung heroes. He does our social media. If you ever see his kind of snarky comments through the conservative review or CRTV Twitter feed, it's actually Joe 99% of the time behind that. So um, really good guy. Um, and I know some of you have uh, – you know, remember him from the early days. So, you know, send me your comments on that as well at RM Conservative on Twitter, DH, DH, Her- ah, D Hurwitz at CRTV.com is my email. We'll see you later this week. Take care. Have a good one. God bless y'all. Hey.